Welcome to DPAC Casts, a podcast series from the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. I'm Ted Barron, Executive Director of the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. For this series, Indie Film, we're taking a closer look at some of the major works from the history of American independent cinema. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at Todd Haynes' landmark work of a movement known as the New Queer Cinema, uh, his film Poison. Um, to situate this film, it's helpful to kind of look back at um, kind of the history of representation of LGBTQ subjects uh, within indie film. Uh, in some cases, um, you know, we're looking at um, examples of films that were uh, directed by straight directors, in some cases gay or lesbian directors or other identities. Um, and if we look back at the early examples of uh, queer film as it's seen through the lens of indie cinema, um, one of the first notable examples comes from John Sayles, who's, uh, you know, who directed the 1983 film Leanna. And in this film, um, he, uh, he looks at uh, the life of a, a young woman who's experiencing a kind of sexual awakening and uh, kind of changing direction in her life. But coming from the perspective of uh, a director who is straight himself, uh, but trying to offer a sort of sympathetic view to what lesbian life might be like in the early 80s. Sales was someone who was known for um, presenting um, uh, subjects that were underrepresented um, and often worked in collaboration uh, with people from different backgrounds. Look at his film, uh, The Brother from Another Planet, where he, uh, he works with uh, black writers uh, to, to help develop that project. But um, with the exception of sales, you know, really um, what we start to see in the lens of queer indie film uh, in the 1980s are uh, LGBTQ directors kind of taking uh, taking the lead. So uh, probably one of the most notable LGBTQ directors is Gus Van Zant, um, who comes to more prominence in the 1990s with his indie film um, uh, Goodwill Hunting. And he makes he directs one of his first uh, films, Mala Noche, which looks at a drift a character of a drifter who happens to be gay, and you know what his uh, you know, kind of everyday life is uh, over the course of the film. Um, Donna Deitch um, has been getting a lot of recognition recently for her 1985 film Desert Hearts, which was recently restored. Um, in um, a kind of frank depiction of a, a lesbian relationship. But the bigger kind of social issue that's hanging over queer cinema in the 1980s is the emergence of um, the AIDS crisis uh, as, as reflected um, more obliquely in Bill Sherwood's Parting Glances and more um, explicitly in Norman Renee's uh, 1989 film A Longtime Companion. Uh, both Sherwood and Renee have fairly short-lived uh, careers as filmmakers because sadly both um, both directors died due to AIDS-related complications and uh, didn't have quite as uh, much you know, much time to kind of further this movement. Um, but what we see in this representation um, is something that's um, it, it's it's we don't see a kind of movement necessarily in terms of. Uh, indie directors who are uh, trying to address uh, queer perspectives. Um, what uh, a, an aspect of indie film that we're not getting into, but which is probably more familiar to a lot of people, is the sort of era of the Sundance Film Festival, the prominence of the Sundance Film Festival and Miramax Studios, 
where we see a kind of move of indie film towards something that's much more commercial. Um, indie film becomes much more profitable thanks to the success of platforms created by Sundance where you know Sundance winning films um, uh, start to get signed by uh, smaller studios and, and later larger studios for significant sums of money. And then um, you have the, the more kind of um, aggressive uh, marketing and distribution that comes from companies like Miramax. Um, so what the opportunity that uh, ar around queer cinema that emerges as those um, as those platforms become more established, what sort of sets the stage for uh, the the movement of mini majors or what's known as indie wood, which is a kind of uh, where you see the larger studios setting up their own. Um, either setting up their own indie branches or taking over some of the independent distributors to have uh, uh, greater control over over the industry, is that within um, the the true independent cinema of this period, it creates a space where um, uh, you can have more of a niche focus among uh, filmmakers in, in terms of content. So. Uh, creates a space where the new queer cinema movement can emerge. Now, this term "new queer cinema" is actually something that's uh, referenced uh, directly in articles by uh, 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 film critic B. Ruby Rich, uh, who talks about what she's seeing on the film festival circuit, which is an increased uh, representation of uh, gay and lesbian characters and subjects, uh, but also filmmakers themselves. Um, and if we look at kind of a breakthrough period for this movement, it's really 1991 heading into 1992 uh, with films like uh, Gus Van Zandt's My Own Private Idaho, uh, which stars River Phoenix and uh, Keanu Reeves. Um, Paris is Burning, which is Jenny Livingston's documentary uh, portrait of um, – uh, the drag balls of New York City, what was seen as kind of an underground scene, uh, gains more prominence uh, through um, uh, through Livingston's film. Uh, Tom Kalen's Swoon and Greg Araki's The Living End, which are seen as, uh, in the case of uh, certainly in the case of Araki's work, more uh, more radical uh, visions of. Uh, of queer life, and even obliquely, or, or you know, less directly, you you look at films like um, *Truth or Dare*, uh, which is the concert film uh, from Madonna's 1990 uh, *Blonde Ambition* tour, um, has uh, certainly a, a sense of queer identity to it. Um, Ridley Scott's *Thelma and Louise* has a has a, a sort of a, a lesbian subtext in the relationship between. Uh, the two characters, the sort of intensity of their connection, even though it's never um, made a, uh, made into a sexual relationship. But there just seems to be more space for different kinds of representation. So um, in addition to filmmakers who are addressing those issues more directly, which is what B. Ruby Rich talks about, um, we see um, – we see other films that are that are definitely queer friendly uh, coming out during this time, which I, th I think creates a space where this kind of representation becomes more commonplace. Uh, first, in the case of indie film, but then we'll see that sort of crossover into the mainstream. So, one of the uh, big uh, key figures who makes this possible is Todd Haynes. Um, Todd Haynes is a filmmaker who was educated uh, first at Brown University, uh, where when he was an undergrad. Um, uh, De uh, developed a friendship uh, with Christine Vachon, 
who ultimately would become uh, a producer on all of his films and would set up her own uh, production label, Killer Films, which uh, not only uh, produced Haynes's work but also several of the other uh, works associated with this uh, with this emergence of new queer cinema. Um, when he uh, and then he goes on to uh, graduate studies at Bard uh, College, um, but when he goes when he sets out to make his first uh, his first film, he takes on an interesting subject, which is a kind of recurring subject uh, throughout his work, and that's a, a sort of an, an imagined uh, story around the lives of famous uh, rock stars. Um, so later on, he'll make uh, films like the uh, films like the Velvet Goldmine or Velvet Goldmine rather, uh, which is a sort of a romantic clef of uh, David Bowie and other figures from the the glam rock scene. Um, more famously, I'm Not There, which is his. Um, sort of expressionistic take on the life of Bob Dylan. Uh, but his first uh, effort in this area was uh, his 1987 film, Superstar, The Karen Carpenter Story, which is a film that if we look at it structurally, it's told more or less in a kind of documentary format, mock documentary format, um, kind of reflecting on the life of Karen Carpenter, uh, sing, uh, singer and drummer from the band The Carpenters, who uh, died at a very young age in 1982 uh, due to uh, her, her ongoing struggles with eating disorders and uh, anorexia and bulimia. Um, in the film, uh, 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 Haynes takes the very unusual approach of uh, recreating scenes from Karen Carpenter's life using Barbie dolls. Um, and within that film, uh, he uh, is able to use those kind of models uh, as opposed to as opposed to you know actual actors um, to get into some pretty um, moving um, scenes in in imagining uh, what Karen Carpenter struggled with as she becomes successful in the music industry, um, and, but also uh, struggles personally as as her uh, as she becomes more and more afflicted to, uh, with her eating disorders. Um, the film uh, generated a bit of controversy, not surprisingly, um, because of the fact that the music that was used for the film was the actual Carpenter's music. So the estate uh, run by Richard Carpenter, Karen's brother, uh, sued Todd Haynes and was able to get a kind of cease and desist uh, with the film where it was uh, removed from distribution. Um, and the access to the film became extremely limited for many years, uh, where it was only available through um, sort of secondhand VHS copies uh, that were made uh, from uh, you know from from some you know source material, which you know it's unclear where that was. Um, personally, I know I got to see the film in the 1990s from a, a third-rate VHS copy uh, that I, that was at a, an independent uh, video store, and really that's how the film that's how most people were getting access to the film uh, for many years after its release. With the advent of YouTube, uh, the film has actually surprisingly been available uh, through different. Um, uh, through different streaming platforms. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's currently on YouTube, but I know recently it was, but it's been available through. Uh, you can it's a film you can find online pretty, uh, pretty easily. Um, so this, uh, but this approach that he uses um, in trying to tell the story of Karen Carpenter's life is something that he found really interesting and informs what ultimately becomes his first major feature film, Poison, which is the film that 
um, I want to talk about it in a little bit more detail, where he, um, he wanted to kind of combine uh, different genres and narrative structures um, to kind of reflect on a variety of issues. Um, but what, the way the film has largely been interpreted is as a kind of a gay allegory of, you know, what, um, uh, what the experiences are for queer people in uh, the late 1980s, early 1990s. So the film is structured around three segments, um, each of which has their own uh, kind of title. The first segment, Hero, is a documentary-style uh, portrait of a young boy, a seven-year-old boy, who um, uh, kills his father because, uh, as it's revealed, the father's been abusive toward him, and the boy decides to fly away. So this is a story that's told using um, a, a kind of television tabloid news format where uh, you think about shows like 2020 or, or um, um, you know, uh, your sort of your Friday night dateline, Friday night um, kind of sensational story of the week um, TV shows, using that format to investigate, you know, what was the reason why, you know, this murder took place and how this boy escaped magically by, um, you know, uh, summoning the powers of flight. And we realize that what's been presented to us is not what it seems um, and suggests um, some you know, very provocative questions about um, identity. Um, horror is the second uh, of the three segments, um, and again, these aren't uh, these are organized a bit differently. But um, the horror film segment is about a scientist who discovers a method of capturing uh, the human sex drive, uh, which he which he's able to kind of concoct in a laboratory in liquid form. He decides to consume uh, this uh, liquid form, as any uh, scientist or mad scientist would do. Which then transforms him into a murderer who's covered with uh, covered with these oozing lesions, particularly around his uh, around his face. Um, so that's a film that's told in the style of a kind of uh, uh, you know mid-century horror film, uh, kind of playing up uh, the more sensational elements, black and white cinematography, using uh, more kind of uh, uh, expressionistic. Um, uh, angles and lighting, um, but the film is very much considered as, uh, or effectively functions as an allegory for um, the uh, AIDS crisis. With essentially, with this, um, you know, this man who's been corrupted by his uh, consumption of sexual <laughs> desire, uh, which then you know causes him to um, go on this killing spree. Um, the the last segment is probably the segment that's. Um, uh, the most, uh, the segment that gets the most regard, but also um, the most controversy, um, and that's a segment titled "Homo," which is a, a segment that's based around uh, the experiences of uh, uh, a 30-year-old man who's um, been sent to a prison, um, and his uh, relationship that develops with a fellow prisoner, which uh, which triggers a series of flashbacks to um, a period when the two men were younger and serving in a, a boys' detention center, uh, which is a radically different space than what we see in, the, in the, what's considered the present-day prison scenes. Uh, the prison scenes are, are, are dark and quite harrowing. Um, 
whereas the uh, the yo- their younger experiences are presented through this very kind of romantic uh, lens. Um, this is uh, a loose adaptation of a, uh, a piece by Jean Genet. Um, it kind of takes some elements of Genet, but also um, kind of goes in some different directions as well. And um, and features um, and, and generated some controversy because of um, its explicit uh, depiction of uh, of gay sex, but also um, because of the sort of uh, the brutality that's actually represented. Um, in particular, a climactic scene from uh, that's recalled of their of their time in the in the boys' detention center that um, that I won't spoil, but um, is something that. Um, is probably what, what what leaves the most lasting impact. Um, so the film itself, you know, in, in combining these different uh, narrative structures and and uh, you know elements of genre, um, in some ways confounded a lot of people, but uh, but also gained a lot of critical acclaim. Um, it wins the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival, and for a fairly low-budget film, um, it's it becomes kind of a modest box office success. Not nothing on the scale of you know some of the the bigger hits that we've uh, referenced so far in this series, uh, but definitely a you know a, a, a decent return on investment and sets up Todd Haynes for uh, opportunities to work uh, to work. Uh, on bigger projects within the film industry. Uh, His follow-up film is arguably considered one of the great works of 1990s independent cinema, Uh, his film Safe, uh, which features Julianne Moore and arguably um, her best performance, a performance that helps to establish her as, you know, one of the key actresses associated with um, the growth of indie cinema throughout uh, the 1990s through kind of the the mini-major Indiewood um, scene. Um, I mentioned Velvet Goldmine and um, I'm Not There. Probably his, his the film that, that makes him more of the critic's darling is the uh, 2002 film Far From Heaven, uh, which uh, also stars Julianne Moore. Uh, and more recently, his film Carol, uh, featuring Cate uh, Blanchett and uh, Rooney Mara. In both of those films, uh, Haynes takes uh, a queer uh, content and puts them – uh, through the lens of um, 1950s American society, in the case of Far From Heaven, it's a it's a kind of loose remake of um, Douglas Sirk's um, All That Heaven Allows. Uh, Carol is an adaptation of uh, Patricia Highsmith um, uh, 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 story, um, but using uh, but but sort of. Uh, representing uh, queer subject matter in, in moments of American history in which um, those uh, the, the visibility of those subjects was was non-existent. Um, in terms of the, the this movement of new queer cinema, um, it's it's a fairly brief moment. Um, so you know there's this real burst of energy in the early 1990s. Um, we see, you know, some carryover in, in films throughout the decade. Films like *Go Fish*, uh, *The Watermelon Woman*, uh, probably the most prominent of which is the 1999 film, also um, produced by Christine Vachon, uh, and that's uh, Kimberly Pierce's *Boys Don't Cry*, uh, which looks at um, the uh, murder of a uh, a trans uh, boy in uh, in the South, and uh, featured. Uh, uh, Hillary Swank in an Oscar-winning performance, um, 
but this, but we don't see a kind of a, a necessarily a movement that carries over. What what maybe, but maybe what the lasting impact of the new queer cinema is is that it opens the door for more mainstream representations of gay content. In the 1990s, you see uh, more uh, mainstream film and television uh, being less skittish around uh, uh, gay content. Um, Definitely a very different uh, place for it than it was in the 1980s. Uh, where you have sitcoms, you have um, you know you have dramas that either center uh, gay character, gay and lesbian characters, or at least have them as uh, or present them as kind of a, a, a fact of everyday life. Um, so while it's a you know it's a brief moment in indie film history, um, I think it's one that that makes its mark and has um, a significant impact in terms of a broader uh, sense of representation, which is something that we're seeing not only through this movement but other uh, other kinds of representation within indie cinema. So that does it for this episode of uh, Deepak Cast. We hope you will join us uh, for our next episode coming up soon.